0: I'm one of the pastors here, and it's a blessing to be sharing the word with you this afternoon. Um, As Pastor Rob mentioned um, during the announcements, we live in trying times. And um, as we're going through these trying experiences, which, you know, trials come in many forms. And Jesus promised that we wouldn't be exempt from trials. If Jesus said, in the world, you will have tribulation. And so if you think that it's a sign that God doesn't love you or you're not a strong enough Christian, um, rewrite that narrative. Jesus said we'll have trials, but he is with us. His peace he gives to us despite them. As I was growing up, my gran was paying to make sure that I recited Psalm 23 every night before I went to bed. Some of you have had maybe a similar torture in your life. And um, at the heart of the psalm, it says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me and you're running your staff. It comforts me. Amen. And so as we are looking at the word today, we're looking at God's fulfillment of the promise to be with us and not just with us, but in us. God knows our weakness. He knows our frailty. He knows our need, oftentimes, for more than what we have in and of ourselves. I know you're like me, and you have found yourselves often in life in a place where you need more than you have. And and I'm not even just talking about money or opportunities or material things but I'm just talking about within your own personal individual capacity you feel spent you feel stretched you feel exhausted you feel completely out of your depth and unable to deal with what is in front of you and God in his goodness has promised and has also fulfilled that promise to his people that he would be our resource, our reservoir, our source of strength. And not just externally. It's not, it's not that we have to plug into something, but actually God has plugged into us. And so um, today I want us to look further at the matter of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Um, as we looked at Galatians, Um, There are a few verses there that challenge us. First of all, we see that through Christ redeeming us from the curse of the law, by becoming a curse for us, because cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, Jesus became the blessing of Abraham that would come to the Gentiles. Gentiles being non-Jews. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So Jesus has accomplished all that we need to receive the Holy Spirit through faith in him. And in light of that and in the knowledge of that, twice the apostle Paul says in chapter 5, walk by the spirit. Walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. We are no longer slaves to sin. We are no longer um, subject to having to give in to sin. And in fact, yes, Jesus has done the work of redeeming us and providing forgiveness. And yet he has also provided the power for us to walk in the reality of that freedom from sin. Paul goes on to say, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. And so there is a intentional, conscientious engagement that we are to be having with the Holy Spirit on a daily basis. And I'm convinced and convicted that For us as a church, that's extremely necessary and pertinent for us to take some time to think on, to meditate on, and to apply. Because there are many ways in which I feel we are not experiencing what God has intended in all of its fullness. And hear what I'm saying. I'm not saying we're not experiencing the spirit of the Lord in his presence and power at all. That's not what I'm saying. And um, let nobody accuse me of that. But what I am saying is that truly there is more for us. Amen. And so let's pray and let's explore what that might look like. Lord, I thank you so much for your faithfulness. To your own name, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that in your goodness, your kindness, and your loving mercy, truly you have fulfilled your own integrity, your own character. Because what is the worth of a promise? A promise is only as good as the person giving it. And Lord, you are good thoroughly. And you have given this promise. And true to yourself, you have fulfilled it. That you would give your spirit to those who put their faith in your son. We thank you, Lord. And we pray that you help us to grow in our understanding and experience of you by your spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we began to unpack um, just who is the Holy Spirit and how does he work? Um, we considered the reality that the Holy Spirit is God. He, he is the third person of the Godhead. And being the third person of the Godhead, he is to be honored and revered as being God. He is not merely an impersonal force or power. But he is a person who acts intentionally and purposefully, enabling us to experience God. We recognize that he was promised from ages before. And so what we talk about today and what we even see in the New Testament isn't uh, a surprise on the agenda But this is something that God has purposed. When God made man in his image and his likeness. In the garden as man dwelt with God. After the corrupting power of sin. Affected and infiltrated the whole of the human experience. It would take more than we have. Even in all of our collective consciousness and human wisdom. We see. There's increase left and right in the world in which we live. We see technology. I mean, you take out your phone and you think that your phone has got more computing power than the first computer that I ever had in my house. I remember having a Commodore 64. I had no idea what to do with it. Apart from play little Space Invader type games. But your phone probably has, I don't know, a hundred times more computing power than the Commodore 64, maybe more. Some of you techno guys can clarify that. More than. Is that what you're saying? More, we have more power in our hands, computing power, than put a rocket in the moon. The night, the night. What? Okay. So we see there's increase. All around. And yet for all of our getting, we don't get better. Uh, We need more than everything that our collective consciousness offers. And God made that promise. I will give you myself. And then we considered how the Holy Spirit is responsible for regenerating and indwelling or living inside of believers. Jesus said, you must be born again. And he was speaking of the the human condition that was dead in corruption and sin in need of being made alive by the effective and energizing and enlivening work of the Holy Spirit. And having done so, he comes to live in us. And so, today we are going to give consideration to what is termed the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I, I think I need, these things are weighty and technical. And I've wrestled with how to most simply us address this. And so, to some extent, we're going to look at what it is. More importantly, we're going to look at what it means. And then I'm going to try and help us understand why it is different today to the time of the apostles. And to show that from Scripture. In 1 Corinthians 12... Verse 13, the Apostle Paul says this. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. And so we see here, Paul, who is in the letter to the Corinthians, speaking a lot about spirituality and spiritual things. I mean, you've got a lot of people today, you know. Yeah, I believe in God, but I'm not religious. I'm spiritual. Okay, we're spiritual as well. Whether people want to deem themselves religious or not, if anyone is a Christian, you're spiritual. And we engage in and live within a spiritual reality. And here the Apostle Paul is saying to the Corinthians... All, we all, himself included, and all that he was writing to as believers were baptized into one body and all made to drink of one spirit. And he's saying that in the past tense. So at this point, he's declaring that actually this is a reality for all believers. The word baptism is a word that we seldom use but sometimes do outside of a religious context. One of the most common uses of the word baptism, if it is used at all, might be in conversations that relate to someone being placed in an overwhelming experience where they've been immersed in a situation that was too great for them. Sometimes that would be even associated with fire and so someone would say how was your first day at work and they'll say boy it was a real baptism of fire I didn't even stop to eat and I was this and I was that and I was the other and it was left right and center and oh my days and we get the sense that that person has been through an overwhelming experience that just immersed them deluged them overtook them and so In that, there's a kind of metaphorical understanding of what baptism is. That sense of being immersed in. And that's fundamentally what is being communicated in scripture as it relates to baptism. We see this in water baptism. And many of us will be quite familiar with water baptism as it's spoken of in scripture. And that sense in which Matthew chapter 28 and the the Great Commission go there for baptizing. And so in that, there's an expectation that in the life of a Christian, a Christian will experience water baptism. Now, some people will debate theologically as to how that works and what that looks like. Some sprinkle And some dip, and they have their different convictions as to what that is. I side with those who deal with the dipping and the dunking. (laughs) The word itself suggests a sense of immersion or being um, submerged into. And so, some of you may have seen the Jesus film, And in the Jesus film, he's in the water with John the Baptist being baptized. And he's standing in the water. And John takes the water and puts it over his head like this. Maybe that was a combination of the two just to settle the theological dispute. (laughs) But it's this sense of being immersed, submerged, submerged, placed into. Now... In Ephesians 1, it says this, and I think this is going to be helpful for us as we try and understand the spiritual reality of what it means to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Now, you look at that and you say, one baptism? I mean, when I look at the New Testament, I see so many different baptisms talked about, let alone if I then begin to speak about the Old Testament and what was going on there. And so the reason that that statement can seem contradictory or even confusing is because we don't really understand what baptism means. We don't. We've lost that in our generation of church history. You see, when it came to baptism in the Bible, we see that baptism was a rite of passage. It was an act of initiation into a community. It was an action that demonstrated or denoted faith, allegiance, and submission. We see that baptism in the New Testament is an experience that consists of two sides of one coin. So we're familiar with the physical act of being water baptized. And, you know, as we were preparing people for baptism back in the day, we'd always used to say it's an, an outward expression of an inward change. That's what water baptism is. An inward change has taken place. And so you're going to now engage in this act That is an outward expression of the inward change. And in the water baptism, we see it being some symbolic of the old person, the old you being going down into the water and being buried and then rising again to newness of life with Christ Jesus. And so it's a symbolic burial of your old person and your old life as you are raised unto newness of life. And yet the physical act of water baptism doesn't achieve that. If somebody engages in water baptism, even of the dunking kind, without faith, nothing happened other than them getting wet. That's all. And so there must be an inward change that the outward expression is a, a demonstration of. And this is what we see Um, encapsulated in this understanding of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So the two baptisms are not in conflict and they're not in contradiction, but in many ways they are two sides of one coin. But when we understand what baptism really means, we will understand why, despite there being two expressions of baptism spoken of in the Christian life, they mean one thing. They, they are resultant of one thing. So Ephesians says, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Okay. Um, let me show you two references, and I hope they're still here. My machine crashed. All right, amen. Two references that speak to Old Testament acts that begin to allude to or forecast baptism in the New Testament and the significance of it. This first reference is a difficult passage. I'm just saying it from the outset. And please don't explain. Expect me to explain all of it right now, because it's a problem, and it will take up all the time that we have. 1 Peter 3. For Christ, sorry, verses 18 to 22. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared. In which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Verse 21. Baptism which corresponds to this now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So, we see that there is a reference to Noah and his family being on the ark and being brought to safety through water. Yeah? Noah and his family on the ark, being brought to safety through water. And then we see a statement that says, This is in keeping with baptism, or baptism corresponds to this. So, this is like what we see in baptism. So there is something in Noah and his family going through the waters of the, the the flood and being brought to safety that corresponds or is a picture for us in what baptism means to us today. Now again, this is this is a, a focus on water baptism. But water baptism can be a helpful picture for the significance of spiritual baptism or the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This is clarified further in this um, example because Peter goes on to say, it's not about the outward washing of dirt. That causes baptism to be effective. It's not going into the water of, like, you know, people say, you know, I wanna go to Israel and get baptized in the River Jordan. As if that's gonna make some extra special significance, like get baptized in the, the Sea of Galilee. Because Peter's saying it's not about the actual water itself and its engagement with your body. But it is the appeal to God for a good conscience. Where is our conscience? It's inside us. Again, baptism is being portrayed or depicted as an expression of an inward reality. What does this mean for us as believers? Quite simply, actions speak louder than words. Actions speak louder than words. So sometimes people who are having memory problems and, you know, they forget simple things like, did I turn off the cooker? Um, did I remember to put the bins out or whatever? They will use physical reminders um, as, as means of helping them. So once they've fulfilled an act, they will then put a rubber band on their finger or a rubber band on their wrist. And so once, when they're in that place where they're like, did I actually do that? By seeing the physical reminder, it's able to pacify and clear their conscience of this sense of, I still need to do something. I still need to do something. I still need to do something. There are often times in our lives as Christians when we will question our own commitment to God. Am I even a Christian? Am I still saved? Does God still love me? Did I really, I mean, when I look at myself and who I am and how I, in this situation, and our consciences are troubled because we recognize that in our weakness and in our frailty, we don't always live up to the credibility of our profession of faith. But baptism serves as a memorial, an act that we can look at and say, you know what, I genuinely put my faith in Jesus Christ. I genuinely committed my heart to him, having had him open my eyes to the truth of who he is. And in response to that truth and through faith in Christ, I went into those waters to be baptised. And so it serves as an appeal to God for a good conscience, even when we're doubting ourselves. Now, God knows those who are his, so it's not like he needs baptism. It's for our benefit. But there is a greater sense in which baptism has significance. It's not just significant to us as individuals, but it's significant to us corporately as we consider actually, we are becoming a part of or joining in to a community. In First Corinthians 10, Verses 1 to 3. For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized, notice this little word, into Moses. In the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food. That word into, I remember wrestling, wrestling with this whole issue growing in the Lord. Wrestling with whose name did you get baptized in? Was it in in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost? Or was it in the name of Jesus? And if it wasn't in the name of Jesus, then you need to go back and get baptized. And all of these issues, and I'm just like, surely... It can't be that complicated. And it can't be that petty. Come on. I mean, when we baptize people, we say, we baptize you into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we cover all the bases. (laughs) Because the words are not some magic formula like abracadabra. Supercalifragilistics. All right. Now you're... It's not about the formula of the phrasing of the words. It's the significance of the meaning. So we see that word there, right? Into. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. Now let me see if I can get back my... um, Definition of baptism, and I want you to think about these verses, and think about how it relates to baptism, meaning this: baptism being a rite of passage, an act of initiation into a community, and an action denoting faith, allegiance, and submission. You see, when it speaks about the fact that they were baptized into Moses, it's they were initiated into submission to the leadership of Moses and his authority, his code and his pattern of life. So when, when, it, when I say an initiation into a community, we will f- hear the word initiation and we might think gang initiation comes to mind. And... I don't know to what extent there is any kind of really code of initiation in gangs over here, but maybe in the States we kind of uh, have heard more of different types of rites of initiation. Somebody wants to become a part of the gang, their initiation is to get jumped in and beaten by everybody else in the gang. And if they can hold a beat in, then you're in. Or they have to go out and they have to commit some criminal act. And if they go, and c- whether that's shooting someone, stabbing someone or whatever, and if they commit that criminal act and don't flinch, they're in. They're, they're regarded as a part of the, the gang. You want to join the army and you have to go through boot camp. And you make it through boot camp and you're a part of the squad. And so all of these are expressions of initiation. And Christianity is no different in that we have an act of initiation. And it is baptism. <clears throat> now, the Apostle Paul in First Corinthians is alluding to the fact that actually this isn't a new thing. This is what the children of Israel went through as they followed Moses through the Red Sea. And so as you look at Exodus... Numbers, you, you, you learn that actually as they traveled with Moses, they went through the Red Sea, out of Egypt, into the promised land, and or into the area of the promised land. We know they walked around for years. And as they were pursuing God under the leadership of Moses, they were covered by a, a, a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. There are those who would say, in this event, we see both types of baptism depicted. We see water baptism. They went through the waters of the Red Sea. And then them being under the cloud of God as they were being led. That being significant of spirit baptism. The word for spirit in Hebrew is also wind or breath. And so... We see an allusion from the Old Testament in these things to the significance of the meaning of baptism. When we look now at the Great Commission, Matthew 28, what do we see? And Jesus came to them, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have. Commanded you and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Some call this the second Exodus. Jesus is declaring the new covenant Moses declared the old covenant and that of the law and Israel's allegiance and submission to it. And in this, we see Jesus saying, go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in. And that word in in the Greek is the same for the word into. In fact, some other translations translate that as into. And so the point is, it's not so much what formula or phrase was used over you when you were baptised. It is, whose team did you join? Whose club did you become a part of? Are you part of God's gang? If you want to put it in those terms. Because in Declaring through baptism that we are, we're saying that we are now not our own. We are submitted to Jesus just as the Israelites were under obligation to and submitted to Moses and to follow his law in all all their days. And so it's those who are actually submitting themselves to the Father, Son and Holy Spirit who are becoming a part of his team as orchestrated by his work. With that being the focus, we begin to see as the book of Acts unfolds, and you might think, you know, this is a lot of talk about water baptism really and truly. We, have, we still haven't really got onto the meat of the matter. But once this becomes clear, then the spiritual will become even clearer. As we go through the book of Acts, we'll see a progression as it relates to this new group, this new entity, this new organism, this new, I wouldn't even say organization because it's more than that, but the church is birthed on the day of Pentecost. And we see first and foremost that There is a focus on the Jews. Acts chapter 2. And when the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And they were amazed and astonished. Sorry. So that's the experience. Then as the people who were in the city observed this experience, verse 7 and 8 says this. The people were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all those who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? So this experience was experienced by Jews. According to the promise of Jesus, His disciples had gone up into the upper room to wait for the fulfillment of the promise. Here they experienced the fulfillment of the promise. And the fulfillment of that created a stir and caused a phenomena in the town, in the city. It wasn't a secret or private experience. It was an open experience. Because actually, the Lord God is using this experience and subsequent experiences, and I, I didn't say that right, it's all right, let me go. <laughs> There's the experiences that follow to, to do something extremely important. The church is a new organism. It's a new body with a new identity. It's, it's from but different to Judaism. And God needed to validate and verify this new work that he was doing. And so, this was the means by which he was doing that. Not only was he validating this new work, he was validating the message of this work, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and also the messengers who were carrying the gospel of Jesus Christ as being true and appointed and verified and validated. Somebody comes to your front door and says, I want to read the gas meter. And they come looking like me. Odds are you're going to feel quite suspicious. You see what I'm saying? This person turns up informally dressed, jeans and trainers, cap on their head. I have just come to read your gas meter. They've got no iPad in hand or whatever their technology is. You look at them and you're thinking, is this person actually for real? You want to, to have some kind of assurance, some kind of validation that this person is genuinely who they say uh, they are and come to do what they say they've come to do and not come with some kind of ulterior motive. And so you might look for ID. What's your ID. You might even take the ID and say, can you just wait there, please? Let me just go and phone your company and see if they actually know you and if you're actually meant to be here, if you feel that concern. And so there are various steps that you will go through to to validate this person's identity and purpose for being on your doorstep. We see this outpouring of God's spirit as God's validation for the church, the message of the church, and the messenger's bearing that message. And so, in the first instance, the focus is on Galileans, on Jews. But then look what happens in Acts chapter 8. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria, ah, all right then, Samaria. Now, you may remember from, your understanding of the the parable of the good Samaritan, that the Samaritans were not full Jews. They were looked down on and hated by the Jews, actually, but they were actually half Jews. So they were kind of like distant cousins. And yet, Samaria had received the word of God. And so they sent Peter and John to them, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So they had experienced water baptism, but not experienced the baptizing of the Holy Spirit. And so look, verse 17. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Hmm, okay. So there was an intentional act of impartation that took place. Let's look again. Acts chapter 10. See further progression. 44 to 48. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed, the circumcised being Jewish believers. They were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. So in Judaism, they had this notion that they are the chosen ones, they're the special ones. God is only for them and working among them. and Everyone else just is an onlooker. But now we see God moving, not just among the Jews, or just among the half-Jews, but even among the Gentiles. Again, this is God validating his message and validating these people as being legitimate recipients of the message. Those half-Jews, Those non-Jews as Gentiles are all welcome. And we know this because God baptized them with his spirit. And so it goes on to say, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And then Peter declared, notice the order in this situation. Can anyone withhold water? for baptizing these people. I mean, why should we forbid them from becoming a part of the team, becoming a part of the family, being recognized as part of the family? Why should we treat them as outsiders? They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And so again, we see this sense of the expansion of the message of the gospel at the hands of the apostles. Apostle basically means specially appointed messenger or special messenger. And as the apostles were carrying the message that they were appointed to carry by Jesus himself, the message and the messenger was validated as God moved from heaven and baptize these recipients of the message. And then we see there's another layer of validation that actually the people who were receiving it were legitimately authenticated or validated as being welcome into the family of God, into the body of Christ. So people ask, why is it today that we don't see people receive the Holy Spirit with, with speaking in tongues as evidence because we don't need to. That's already been established. That was part of the foundation being laid for the church. How many times do you lay a foundation in construction? You lay it once. And so there are no apostles of that order who have the authority to write scripture in the way that Peter and John and Paul and all these guys did. There are no apostles of that order. And so there is no need for individuals to be specially validated. That's already happened. And we know God validated them and their message is true. And that's why we have it in scripture. How is it that we don't see people receive the Spirit by laying hands on them? Why don't we just call everybody to the front at the end of the service to, to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit by laying on the hands of the elders? Because that was part of the foundational expression of God's work. The authenticating season of God's work which has been completed. And so as we saw in 1 Corinthians 12:13. Actually, the experience of being baptized by the Holy Spirit is something that every believer now experiences upon faith in Jesus Christ. It's not a second experience that we need to to wait for or that we need to, like. I was going to use the word tarry, um, (laughs) old school, that we have to wait for. That's what tarry me basically means. But there's a different kind of essence to tarry because tarry isn't just waiting like waiting for a bus. There's an energy that you put into tarrying. There's an effort that you put into tarrying when you're seeking and you're praying honestly. Yeah, That's, that's tarrying. That's tarrying. That's how I know tarrying anyway. You know what I mean? You're laboring in your waiting. Now, Again, we see this in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and God is so wonderful. The provision of God's word is amazing. Because in the same chapter, look at what Paul says. Now, you are the body of Christ. And individually members of it. And so he affirms, you are the body of Christ. You're part of the family. And God has appointed in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. We'll unpack all of that right now. But then look what he says. He says, are all apostles? The obvious answer, it's a rhetorical question. The obvious answer is no. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Do all work miracles? No. Do all possess gifts of healing? No. Do all speak with tongues? Now you can't at that point break the cycle, break the, 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 the pattern, and say, yes, everybody must speak in tongues. <laughs> you can't, you can, it doesn't make sense. It's not consistent. It's not consistent. So just, let's just be consistent and be honest. Do all speak with tongues? No. But verse 27 said, we're all the body of Christ. Verse 13 says that we have been baptized into one body by one spirit. And so therefore, let's not do gymnastics with the text. And let's not use our experience to define our understanding of the text. We have to allow the text to define our understanding of our experience. And as believers, there are going to be those points and those times at which what we thought we knew, we we didn't actually know correctly. Correctly. And what we had been told wasn't right, even though we trusted and we still respect the person who told us. And there are those points when we have to undergo a personal review and be like, hmm, okay, am I understanding this right in the light of what I now know. God in his grace and his mercy, he's so wonderful. He allows us to, to walk in the little light that we have. And, it, and even those things we're ignorant of, he doesn't hold it against us. And even those things we don't see quite right, the Lord still works in our lives. I know there's somebody who can say amen and testify to that in your life. And yet, we're increasingly accountable for the truth that we know. And so when we know better, then we do better. And sometimes we have to have the boldness and the willingness to say, is what I've heard Is what I've been taught correct? And I say that even as I'm saying this to you now. I'm not saying you've got to do that to everything else you've heard, but not what I say, because I'm right. God forbid. God's right. And we're all here in the same boat, on the same level. And we'll talk more about this next week. As those who believe in Jesus, we have his spirit, and we're relying on him to help us understand those things that we are taught. And it's a process. I've been, um, if you guys are unfamiliar, I, I commend to you the, the, um, the videos and the ministry of the Bible Project. The Bible Project. Oh, my days. I've been just going in on a number of the videos, and they actually also do a podcast as well which I commend to you as well, because a lot of the backstory, you get a five, seven minute video, and and it beautifully portrays things. But there's a lot that they don't explain as to how they came to that conclusion. So you listen to the podcast and you can get that. And I've just been loving, you know, one of the things they say is that scripture is Jewish meditation literature. And it's designed to be read over and over and pondered and considered. And it isn't like a, a data manual. I want to know how to fix the fuel injection on my car. Let me get Google. Do, 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 do. Um, instruction manual. Or back in the day, it would be the Haynes manual. You remember the Haynes manual, some of you? And you, just, and you, you look at the data, you match it up, you do it, it works. Way We're good, we're on our way. That's not how the Bible is constructed. It's constructed with the intention for us to ponder, to meditate, to think, to chew over. And as we do, we extract the richness of it for our lives. And so, what I'm saying to you may be um, different to what you've heard. But I would encourage you, you know what? Go and consider it and search the scriptures and see if it be so. And even if you arrive, arrive at a place of disagreement, I won't have any beef with you. I'm just letting you know up front. So we can reason about it with loving hearts and generous grace towards one another. Amen. Amen. And I would hope that you wouldn't find yourself in a place where you feel the need to become aggressively dogmatic. No, Pastor E, you're wrong, and this is what it is, and this is... And if if you don't see it this way, we must break fellowship. (laughs) Amen. We're We're all sojourners, strangers and pilgrims, journeying together. And so let's do so graciously and lovingly. Next week, we will consider how is this that has been explained different from being filled? Um, We see repeated instances in the scriptures where individuals were filled with the Spirit, even after having been baptized. And I believe that the the Bible present them as um, associated but different. Um, Baptism takes place at one point. Filling is something that we should constantly seek, as it says in Ephesians 5, um, verse 16. Um, And then we'll also consider a very, very pertinent question. Does the Holy Spirit speak today? And if so, how? And so I'm going to invite the team to come back um, and join me. Spiritual baptism is that rite of passage. Spiritual baptism is that spiritual rite of passage where Jesus places us into, immerses us in his spirit. And initiates us into a spiritual community or the invisible church, the invisible body of Christ. And that that invisible work is expressed through physical water baptism. Having been regenerated and indwelt and immersed by God's spirit having come into relationship with God and become a part of his spiritual family, we then express the reality of that and our commitment to that, to walk in that and our commitment to walk, not just as individuals following Jesus, but as part of the church, the body of Christ, we then engage in water baptism. So we thank God for his saving work, because it is by means of the presence of his spirit that we are consistently and daily kept, preserved by him, for him, and according to his will, a stand. And Lord, I pray that even as we've heard this, that we would ponder it, that we would prove it, and that we would apply it, Lord. And that we would walk in that reality, the reality of your presence, Lord, that you have forged, that you have done, that you have worked in us. And so, Lord, I I pray, I pray, Lord, that as we grow in you, and as we grow in the knowledge of you, we would also grow in the experience of you, also grow in the the expressing of you, Lord, because it is for this purpose that you made us and for this purpose that you saved us. The purpose, Lord, that you have for us is so much greater than ourselves. And so, Lord, I ask that you would just continue to show yourself strong. Continue to work in us, Lord, by your spirit, that Jesus Christ would be glorified, that the message of the gospel would be exalted. We ask this in your name, Lord. Amen.